You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Here we are back, uh, back in Hercules Hall, or La Salle d'Hercule, as I like to uh, think of it. Um, I'd just like to endorse something that's... Uh, that Alan de Botton said last night about changes in the workplace. I think it's absolutely true. I think at 1750, you certainly see something very different happening about 1830. Then again at 1925. But in my opinion, if you're still there at 2130, that's much too late and you really should have been going home much uh, <laughs> earlier. <laughs> Do keep up. Um, we've heard about the flower of honesty. So here I am, the weed of journalism. Um, I... <laughs> I applied for a job at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, they wouldn't have me. Uh, but let me say, in defence, Neil was very polite about the FT before being mildly critical of it, but let me say, of course, on the mark-to-market point, we know that's, of course, highly controversial, that Enronitis was characterised by outrageous and perverted mark-to-market accounting and that it can be abused. And So take that, Rolling Stone magazine. You won't read that in there. Uh, we have our panel of experts to, uh, to discuss this theme of trust this morning. I'm going to briefly introduce them as we go along the line. Immediately next to me, Richard Gillingwater, who's the Dean of the CASP Business School, one of the supporters of this event. Uh, merchant banking experience, at, as we used to call it, at BZW, and corporate law at uh, Lovells before that. Next to uh, Richard, uh, Matthew Kirk, who is still relatively newly established as the Corporate Affairs Director of Vodafone, and before that, until recently, uh, our ambassador in Finland. So, two perspectives there at least. Simon War next to him, um, from Jaguar Land Rover, another kind sponsor. You're being ferried around courtesy of his uh, company, and we look forward to hearing him talking about trust and the, the difficulties of managing brands uh, in an era where the rather conspicuous consumption of a Jaguar Land Rover car is something you have to sell to a sceptical audience. Uh, next to Simon Darcy Wilson Reimer, who's the managing director uh, in UK and Ireland for Starbucks, one of the best known brands, uh, companies in the world, absolutely in the thick of that debate about globalization and trust and preserving the integrity of the brand. And lastly, uh, Mrs. Moneypenny, my FT colleague, columnist, celebrating now. Over 10 years, <laughs> can it really be, <laughs> uh, of uh, one of the most popular, best-read uh, pieces uh, uh, in the, of course, in our Saturday edition, which you can pick up, uh, I think maybe one or two copies, uh, around the place uh, this morning. Trust. Um, I like very much Robert's point about action, not abstraction. I write about management, so... I do think it's what people do rather than what people say in the end that counts. And if there's a gap between what people say and what they do, that's a pretty quick way to um, destroy any trust that may have been invested in you. Uh, once lost, trust, something for the panel to discover. Is it a bit like virginity? You, you really won't get it back again, however much you may wish to <laughs> at times. Uh, let me start off... Uh, <laughs> Let me start off with... Uh, that's a loud laugh from Derek, isn't it? Share uh, later. Uh, 
let me start off with uh, Richard. Uh, we, ha- we are starting slightly late, so I'm sure we'll um, want to keep our remarks reasonably brief and allow people to come in, given that they now have to undertake the 13th task of Hercules, which is to try and stay awake for uh, another hour or so without oxygen. Uh, Richard, over to you. Well, I, first of all, thank you. Um, I wanted just to uh, share a perspective on, uh, as I come from the world of business schools, perhaps a perspective on what um, part uh, business schools might have played, and I'm particularly struck by what Neil has said uh, about the banking and financial services sector, and I was going to actually aim my remarks at that. But what, what part... Um, business schools might have played in that and then actually share um, some perspectives in the very much of the context of action about what we're trying to do to uh, take some steps to learn some lessons Um, and I wanted to uh, just very briefly try and put um, business schools in in a perspective here because um, while not demonized quite as much as banks Um, they certainly have come in for their share of opprobrium. And in fact, Neil's alma mater, uh, the business school side, probably uh, more so than any with its terrible rogues gallery of um, CEOs. Um, I think that uh, business schools have played, since the 60s, a hugely important role in professionalizing management and in developing finance. And I think if you look at the net contribution that that has brought to organizations and indeed to the development of finance in the way that that modern finance underpins the corporation and economic growth, I think that there is an absolutely indisputable um, body of evidence that would show that, that corporations are big net beneficiaries of a reflection on management, on the techniques of management, and, and indeed on finance. Um, so that's my starting point. Um, nevertheless, I do think that uh, there, are, there are things that have happened inside business schools, not necessarily just CAS, which have definitely played a part. And it's, it's interesting, actually, I'm pick, going to pick up on a number of things as it happens that uh, Neil has been saying. But if I look at the financial crisis, then, and I'd like to pick out three things, actually. <clears throat> First is um, the role of models in assessing risk. And I couldn't agree more with what Neil has said there, that, that uh, if you like, the application of science to finance has created a sort of mythology in the power of the model uh, that has taken over in, in many banks' approaches and, has, and for a while has created a sense of the invulnerability of models and much of that has proved to be, in Neil's words and indeed in mine, total crap. Um, we place far too much reliance on those models. I think another fundamental aspect of what has happened in the financial crisis, again picked up, is that senior managers and boards um, have allowed too much complexity and innovation and have simply not understood uh, either the implications of this complexity and innovation or indeed uh, 
fatally, perhaps in some cases, the basic products uh, that the bank is, is dealing in or its traders are dealing in. And I think there's been a, a, an almost fatal decoupling in some ways of an understanding on the part of senior managers um, from the underlying reality of what has been going on in the organization or indeed tolerated. And the third area, which, which wasn't picked up on, but which I think is a very big theme, is that um, as banks have concentrated and grown and grown to be very large um, organizations, uh, so we have um, got this sense of too big to fail. And we have lost that, that uh, terrifically important concept of the moral hazard. And the uh, implicit understanding that uh, sometimes really quite reckless uh, lending, uh, extremely imprudent levels of leverage, can in fact and will be fundamentally underwritten by the state. <coughs> so those are some reflections. Now, um, I don't think business schools are in a way more than a reflector of what has been happening in that context. But I would say that um, in the context of the application of science to finance, uh, we, we have certainly played our part um, in terms of that, that now somewhat false belief in the power of models. And I think at a more general level, there's a, there is a really fundamental point. Um, and I was very struck um, uh, some time ago reading this in the context of one of the big banks where its objective was um, very explicitly on the face of the very front page of the accounts was actually that hallowed phrase to maximize shareholder value. And I think there has been a sense in which um, some business schools have overly focused on that, that sort of value-free uh, scientific approach to shareholder value um, at, the expense or, uh, at the expense of other very significant um, obligations and understandings. So I think we have played a part. And I think you see that um, actually in, and I take two cases here, Northern Rock and HBOS, where both actually became highly return-driven, um, often very sort of marketing-led, and lost sight of some of the sort of prudential core values of their, um, their system, and just were far too out in front uh, for their own good. At a more general level, and this is a question that we do wrestle with in business schools, uh, is the ever-pressing need to balance the need to acquire a lot of technical knowledge with um, the macro context, with the historical context, and with critical frames of reference. And I just want to end, and again, it, it's actually uh, very much to, uh, again, to Neil's point, but... One of the things we're doing at um, CAS, and first of all, we're revising our models. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, though, seriously, we are actually uh, looking very much at the, the whole sort of content and emphasis, particularly of the curricula of our finance degrees. And um, we uh, we're basically looking to import three things, far more historical context, 
So it happens in our school. We've got a wonderful tradition of um, historical economists bringing that out far more. A much bigger emphasis on the macro uh, context. Um, And I think fundamentally also uh, an important sense of not trying to make people ethical, but actually spending time and creating time in terms of what we do to have a much more critical reflection on some of the bigger issues that are going to meet people in their careers as they travel through their life. So that's some of the response that, that we are trying to take to this, I suppose, ultimately vexed question of what's going to be different. Terrific. Thank you, Richard. And you're, you're going to share with us, aren't you, in the spirit of transparency and disclosure, you're going to share what these new financial models are and what this new <laughs> historical awareness is too, aren't you? Absolutely. Terrific. Terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's hear from Matthew. And it's fascinating to, to know about your, your background and plunging into the corporate world after so many years of service. So uh, your, your joint perspective, if you like, on the commercial and what is the role of the state, what is the role of the business. We look forward to hearing Matthew. Thank you very much, Stefan. Uh, I think I'd like to sort of start picking up on the discussion that was happening in breakfast uh, down at the hotel um, because it seemed to me underlying a lot of the opinion on the panel and opinion in the room was a sort of proposition that um, business is sitting there with some mildly malevolent sort of undisclosed purpose um, behind it as we go into this extraordinary era of digital innovation. I have to say, as you said, Stefan, as somebody new to the corporate world, but sitting in the executive board of a company that's right in the middle of that digital revolution. It doesn't feel like that at all. Uh, We are grappling every day with exactly the sorts of issues that were being discussed over breakfast, were being discussed uh, around the corridors and so forth. And we don't know what the right answers are. We know no more what the right answers are than anyone else does. We perhaps have a slightly different view of it and a little bit more of an inkling of where the next stage of evolution is going to go. But even that is happening now so fast. When I joined the company four years ago, we reckoned a generation in the mobile internet was about two years. It's now down to about six months, and it's speeding up all the time. So we don't know what's going to happen next. And what's happening next is being led partly uh, by innovation, by creativity, uh, by people, some of them very small startups, some of them huge uh, companies, coming up with new ideas, pushing them out, trying them out, but it's being led mainly by what people then do with those ideas. And the real difficulty for us is that people are different. And if this was a room full of 17-year-olds, the opinion in the room about where all this stuff is taking us would be wildly different to the group that's in the room now. Um, And that creates a real problem for us because our customer base ranges from the 17-year-olds and a little bit younger Uh, right up to the 80-year-olds and so forth. The thing that is really clear to us as a company, though, is that we will not succeed, and indeed these services will not succeed, the new potential won't succeed, if the people using them don't trust them. Uh, So trust is absolutely fundamental. We see, on the one hand, an incredible opportunity to change the way in which our whole ecosystem operates uh, 
which I think, and the Internet's been with us for 20 years or so as a sort of uh, a major feature of our lives, but I think we're still at a fairly early stage of knowing how it's actually going to reshape the way in which uh, economies work, the way in which societies work, communities work, and so forth. Um, And as we're going through that reshaping process, we will inevitably bump up against some some awkward problems, some bits of difficulty. Uh, The case of the three Google executives just sentenced to prison in Italy uh, for a film that they knew nothing about but uh, happened uh, to be purveying to a very large number of people and so forth. Just as a little illustration of that, I'd just like to do a little totally unscientific public opinion poll. I have on my iPhone two apps, which I use quite a lot. One uh, is a secure app which connects into my bank account and tells me what's going on in my bank account. Uh, And the other is a wonderful thing called ATM Hunter, which tells you where the nearest cash machine is. Can I just ask a show of hands who, like me, thinks that those are quite useful services to have available to you in your pocket any time? Sort of more or less everyone. Okay. Can I now just ask, let's assume I'm walking down the road on a Friday afternoon and I normally take a couple of hundred quid out of an ATM on a Friday afternoon uh, for the weekend and all the rest of it and I'm walking down the road and I get a text message from my bank which says to me, you haven't taken any money out of your account yet, you usually do on a Friday afternoon, there's an ATM 100 yards ahead of you on the left. Who like me would find that a bit creepy? (laughs) More or less the same number of people. Um, the technology that you need and the data that you need in order to do those two things are really pretty much the same. So it's not a question of capability. It's a question of your perception of what the people who are providing you with a service are doing with that capability. And one of my sort of general observations, again rather unscientific, is that there was a, a change in public understanding I'm not sure exactly when, I'd say about five years ago. Roughly five years ago, most people had less of a sense of what companies, corporations, database owners and so forth could do with their data than the companies, corporations and database owners and so forth could actually do with their data. Today, I think people actually have more of a sense, more of an impression of what can be done with their data Um, than the companies, corporations, and database owners are actually capable of doing today. But obviously, uh, tomorrow, things things could change. Um, And data for us as a company is a huge problem. We have massive data centers around the place. We're storing petabytes, and please don't ask me what a petabyte is, petabytes of data um, on a constant basis. A lot of that is actually driven not so much by our desire to hold data, but by government requirements. And some of the capabilities that we develop, which the breakfast discussion was finding a bit sort of creepy and suspicious, we develop because the law requires us to. The law requires us to be able to tell the security agencies of a company who's talking to whom, when they're talking to them, what they're saying, where they are when they're saying it, and so forth. And we have to have very careful internal controls within the company to make sure that when we develop that capability, we keep it under very tight control so that it cannot be used except in the circumstances where it is lawfully required to be used. And that relies on a level of trust within the company, which is also enormously important. Among 
my responsibilities in the company is responsibility for that security side of our operation worldwide. And the question that my boss, our chief executive, asks me most frequently is, how certain are you that we as a company are doing nothing wrong? He doesn't say illegal. He doesn't say untrustworthy. It's nothing wrong. It's a moral judgment. It's in a room full of people coming from the very distinguished uh, press institutions that that are represented here. It's what I call the Daily Mail test, and I'm sorry if I'm sullying the atmosphere by saying that, but um, the story that would be on the front page of tomorrow's mail doesn't matter whether it's illegal or, ille- or legal. It doesn't matter whether it's justifiable or unjustifiable. It doesn't matter whether you think you have a perfectly sound rationale for doing it, whether you're going to make money out of it or whatever. Um, if it doesn't smell right, it's not right. And because we operate in a very large number of different legal jurisdictions, we have different legal and licensing and regulatory requirements on us in terms of how we process people's data. Um, All of that means that our concept of trust has to be one which allows for different manifestations of that trust uh, in in different societies and and different jurisdictions. That is an enormous challenge if you're sitting in a company today. And I really just wanted to leave you with with a sense of uh, questioning back from the corporate world Um, to you, we actually need your help in defining what the paradigms of this new system are. We can't do it ourselves. We will inevitably get it wrong on various occasions. And as mentioned over breakfast, the the trouble that Google is suddenly finding itself in. I happen to think Google is one of the most exciting, innovative companies uh, in the sort of digital ecosystem at the moment. But it's also a slightly naive company. It's two founders, two very remarkable people, set the company up to do no evil. They believe that by making information available, they are doing good. And most people believe that transparency is a good thing. But transparency has a point where it tips over into invasion and intrusiveness. And Google's problem, in a sense, is that they have built an entire company on the basis that it, by definition, does no evil, because they all believe that they do no evil. And so something that appeals to them as a good idea and may appeal to a large number of their customer base as a good idea can nonetheless come across to some others as something threatening or illegal or wrong. Um, And this judgment of right and wrong seems to me uh, to be for uh, someone operating in the corporate world um, at the very heart of how you maintain trust in your brand and trust in your service. And it is a very difficult judgment to get right. One final remark, Stefan, you mentioned I was in government service for uh, the best part of a quarter of a century uh, before joining Vodafone. And one of the other factors that is very strong, one of my motivations, in fact, to move across from the one to the other, was a very profound sense that the world of government, politics, opinion forming and decision taking and the world of corporations and business plans and uh, investor relations and maximizing shareholder value are almost catatonically incapable of communicating with each other. 
And this is really, really serious at a time when we're going through a major evolution of the way in which our economy and our society works. Because the regulatory and political levers that are pulled are pulled in ways that expect the corporate world then to respond. But the corporate world responds according to its own decision-taking methods. And I regularly sit down with regulators around the world, in this country and in others, and say, you have a set of public policy priorities here, which we could be quite a large part in delivering. But you've also created, through your fiscal and regulatory regime, a set of incentives on us, which are actually pointing us away from delivering those objectives that you've set. And then you find it frustrating that you're not doing what we could be doing in order to deliver them. So I think a need for much greater dialogue, much greater transparency and trust between those two worlds of policy-making and opinion-forming and corporate decision-taking is a fundamental element of um, trying to find a way through this very complex area. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. And an intriguing uh, thought you left us with. I, I know that Tom Peters did once uh, describe Finland as the People's Republic of Nokia. And uh, so it's perhaps not so surprising that you ended up where you did. I didn't realise it was already four years, though, so I apologise for describing you as a new boy. Feels new. <laughs> in, but in mobile and 3G time, yeah, four years time. is a long time. Uh, thank you very much. By the way, I don't know if you have children or teenage children, but the idea of telling them where the next cash dispenser is seems pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> Disable that one. <laughs> now, Simon. Si- Simon War and I actually are both here by royal appointment. Uh, not actually Her Majesty. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Henrietta Royal of uh, City University, who um, uh, reminded me that in my very brief biography, and I don't know about Simon's, but it does not point out that we are both products of the peerless, the world-beating... What was the other one? Um, <laughs> postgraduate journalism course at City University in Clerkenwell uh, 20 years ago. Was it really 20 years ago? It was really 20 years ago. Anyway, Simon, we look forward to hearing what you have to tell us about these fantastic cars that are parked outside. Oh, I'm not going to talk about the cars. Thank okay. you. Um, actually, the, the, the opposite. I, I, I did wonder if, as a um, representative of the car industry here today, whether I could sit up here in a trust panel and avoid uh, the word Toyota. Um, and I guess I've just failed. So um, I, I'm not going to indulge in, in five or ten minutes of schadenfreude, though. Um, You'll be glad to hear. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I think any manufacturer of, of very complex consumer products uh, is, is currently sort of looking on in horror at, at what they're going through at the moment. Um, and certainly anyone who produces products that are uh, sold to the general public, to non-expert users that, through accidents or whatever, have the capacity to do serious harm, uh, has had a very, very sharp <coughs> reminder of uh, an extremely thin line uh, between trust and, uh, if not brand, then potentially uh, business meltdown. Um, I think um, trust... In a, in a business like ours, uh, it has to be brought down to uh, a, a very practical level. Um, it's not, I have to say, a, a metric that we uh, monitor or analyse. There are some models, there are some uh, pieces of analysis that, done that do look at trust. 
Uh, but we break it down, I think, into um, what you could probably describe as the, the drivers of trust. So we look at, in extensive detail uh, on an ongoing basis at things like quality and reliability and dependability. And, uh, and I guess it gets to the very heart of the relationship between the customer and uh, the brand or the product. We also look, um, as you might expect, very extensively at satisfaction. That's satisfaction of a number of different groups, whether they're the, the end customers, the, the suppliers, the dealers, um, and various other sort of groups. Um, and that's my next point, really, is that I, I do agree strongly with what Robert said, which is, is very much a, a stakeholder game. Um, you know, trust uh, for us is, for example, wage and labour agreements with unions. Uh, it's payment terms with suppliers. Um, it's performance versus targets uh, for shareholders uh, and creditors. So um, we shouldn't only be focusing on the corporate with, if you like, the, the external public. There are other publics that they need to be thinking about as well. Um, but at the end of the day, I think um, you know, all of trade is founded on trust. And, and I think Neil highlighted this, but in a very sort of absolute sense of either trust is there or not. I suppose where I struggle a little bit is in the focus on relative levels of trust um, uh, and how meaningful those can be. So whether you're at 40% or 42%, whether you've gone up 10% or down percent, I'm not quite sure how meaningful that ends up being uh, in, a, in a business context. Um, you know, if, I'm not a big fan of charts, um, even though I work with uh, a group of people who absolutely love charts, I, I kind of struggle with them. But there are some charts I'd very much like to see in this area. I'd like, for example, to see charts that correlate trust over time versus trade over time, because I'm not sure that those two are, are necessarily synced. I'd also like to see um, trust over time versus transparency over time, for example, or engagement in corporate social responsibility over time. And the reason I say that is because... Um, I think that over time, trade is increasing, uh, whether you know, trust is declining or not. And therefore, I think trust is not necessarily an absolute that we should be looking at for business in general. It becomes more of a differentiator between businesses. Um, as a consequence, I don't think there is necessarily uh, a business response, a generic business response to the issue of trust. At the end of the day, this is one thing, and I'm not necessarily a free marketeer, but the market is going to decide. The market's going to decide whether businesses are trusted or not, and you're not going to get a collective response to improving trust in business per se. Um, but as I said, I also think those charts would be useful because I think the question of what business can do about it is quite interesting at the moment. I, don't, I think it's a huge oversimplification to say transparency is the answer because I think we have become more transparent. There is a huge industry now growing up in and around CSR over recent years, and yet... The implications seem to be that trust is declining. So I think there's a much bigger answer that needs to be looked at uh, in all of this. Um, and I suppose, you know, switching into the political realm, I'd be interested to see if trust in politicians has declined to such a degree what the turnout at the next election is going to be, because theoretically that should be now very low. Um, but I'm assuming that it actually won't be. So I think there's some very interesting correlations there. One area that I do think, and I pick up a point that um, was made, um, is that um, one of the big threats to business, and, and perhaps particularly in this country, and I know this is something that Richard Lambert is particularly concerned about, is um, 
that a lack of trust turns into uh, a, a thrust for quick solutions through legislation and perhaps knee-jerk legislation. I think that's particularly dangerous for us in this country as we go into a period where um, public spending is reduced, private sector has been turned to much more uh, for the recovery, uh, and we have uh, a potential new parliament with vast numbers, relatively speaking, of uh, new MPs and new ministers who may have very little experience. I think if we get the wrong policy framework around the recovery because of what we've been through before, because of a lack of trust, then we could be in a lot of trouble. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for bringing up uh, CSR and PR, and also Richard Lambert, the former editor of the FT, who I think once said, rather memorably, that when there is no bad news in the newspapers, there are good people in prison. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, write it down. You think you'll remember it, but you won't. You know. Uh, Darcy, I don't know if you've managed to get some Starbucks coffee into your system this morning or not, so uh, you may be slightly under par, but uh, 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 we, uh, we look forward to hearing about you um, talking of politics and, and the interrelationship between business. I think uh, Lord Mandelson let off steam a little bit, uh, like an espresso machine in, in your company's direction a few months ago, so you know all about what politicians can do, but... Darcy, the floor is yours. Thank you. And I have had a cup of Starbucks coffee this morning. Thank you very much. So uh, I, I hope to fire on all cylinders. Um, I think, so we've learned, uh, or we heard this morning, I think that uh, this is something that everybody knows. Trust has to be earned. You can lose trust um, faster uh, than you've um, earned it. Um, and I think in business, um, trust basically is an outcome of two things. One is your intent, and the second is your behavior. Um, and in order to earn trust, uh, I believe there's three really broad areas. Um, transparency, we've already talked about. Um, I think that values uh, is absolutely key. The values of the company and the values of the people that work in the company are absolutely um, critical to trust. And the third thing would, is this notion that we can't do it alone. It's no one individual um, that can do it but it's an amalgamation of everybody's work and action that actually builds trust. Um, and really, um, the, on this notion of values, every time you compromise your values, you are essentially compromising trust to a greater or lesser degree, depending on, on, um, on what you do. Um, but I, I want to just concentrate for a second on um, this notion of working together. We've heard about... Um, and I was, of course, every time I get the Edelman Trust Barometer, it feels like my annual appraisal, and I get to see whether I'm better than a banker, a lawyer, a politician. Uh, I'm always behind NGOs, uh, something that uh, I'm going to continue to work on. But I think all of those groups, actually, we can all work together uh, in order to build trust in the uh, entire system. And uh, I'm just going to um, use a story of our relationship with fair trade, just as a way of illustrating my point. Um, if you go back uh, three or four years, um, although we were probably, well, we were the largest purchaser of fair trade coffee, actually our relationship with fair trade was, was I wouldn't say adversarial, but it wasn't where it needed to be and wasn't where it was today. Basically, what we were saying about fair trade in the corridors and around the water cooler was, 
Uh, they don't care about quality. They've got you know single agenda of just price. And around their water coolers, they were saying uh, they don't really care about the farmer. All they care about is how much you know money they make. But we needed. We were buying fair trade coffee. They needed us. Uh, we were saying we're the largest purchaser of fair trade coffee in the world. Uh, we needed them. And actually, the answer was uh, getting together and, and really understanding each other and allowing each other to be who we are. Um, and uh, the, the, the real breakthrough was when we decided to go together to origin. So we, we went with Fairtrade to Rwanda and actually stood on farms, went and talked to farmers. Um, we opened up our systems to them in a really open and transparent way, and they did the same. And it wasn't until we were able, standing on a farm, that there was one example. It was not a fair trade farm. And I was saying, you know, there's 2,000 farmers, each earning a dollar a day, that could uh, benefit from a fair trade premium that we will pay. Um, but it falls foul of your rules because they're selling their coffee to a washing station owner as opposed to a co cooperative. And if you'll change your rules, um, we can guarantee that another 2,000 farmers come into your system. So fair trade, you have to go and, and do that. It was only there, listening to the farmers, that allowed us to say, you know what, well, maybe there is something we could do together on this to help more people. But equally, four hours later, we're standing in another cooperative, and we're talking to a group of uh, farmers, and we ask, you know, what, tell us, what is the one thing? Just give us the one thing that would make the biggest difference. And they said access to credit. We, we, if we don't have the money to pay the workers before the crop, uh, then we have to sell it early, and we sell it at a significantly reduced price. And fair trade was then able to say, well, Starbucks, you say you have $20 million uh, out, you know, in uh, small credit to farmers. Why is it not getting here? What is wrong with your system? Um, uh, and then we also worked, we, we met with another NGO, uh, TechnoSurf, funded by the Gates Foundation, who had some other perspectives around things uh, that neither us nor fair trade had thought about, and we, were, we hadn't gone with the expectation of bringing in a third person and learning more. And the net result was we were able to sit down with the Rwandan government and give them some feedback on how they could make their economy better, uh, basically by working together. And then able to come back to this country and say to our government, who uh, I'm not sure if you know, we're the largest contributor to the Rwandan economy, about 5% of their GDP comes from the UK. We're able to sort of say to our government, well, here's what, in, in our narrow view, of coffee, here's what's working and here's what's not. Uh, and then, assuming the government collects everybody else's view. Uh, and it's, this point for me is that we make it better and we earn trust by us all working together. And I think the final point around that is just we have to allow each other to be who we are. So that required me to stand up to, you know, be it fair trade or other NGOs that we work with, and to say we are a for-profit organization. However, what we are trying to do, the values of our company is that we're trying to build a company with a social conscience, so where we balance profitability um, and social responsibility together. But we are for profit. And uh, the NGOs are not-for-profit organization, and their role is to hold businesses to account. So that required me to say to everybody in Starbucks, is that's the role of the NGO. They're going to prod, they're going to push, they're going to examine, they're going to ask us hard questions, and they're going to ask us to change some stuff. And that's okay, because it's only when we, we do that and behave together that we can um, really earn trust sort of in, in a bigger way. Um, and I'll leave it there.
Darcy. I promise to give you some Starbucks. <laughs> Darcy, thank you very much. And perhaps just briefly we could just follow up a little bit on your relationship with Oxfam in particular and because that, that must have been not regarded as something without risk for the company and, and no doubt, in fact, I think I know from Oxfam's point of view, equally. Yeah. Uh, so you've tried to have a sort of adult-adult conversation with them. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, if, you, if you go back with the history of our relationship with Oxfam, uh, is that it was traditionally, you know, mutual understanding. And then there was a point in time where, um, in Oxfam's view, that we didn't behave responsibly. There was a, a misunderstanding uh, with the Ethiopian government. It was all about trademark. Uh, they, they wanted to trademark their coffee. We wanted origin protection, so like feta cheese, champagne. Right. Uh, and Rhubarb. So, <laughs> no, sorry, that's not a comment. Uh, it's a new the, story. Yeah. The, Go on. The point is, is actually, in that particular situation, there were some things that we could have done better as a company. Um, but, uh, and, you know, we all are prone to making mistakes. But the point is what happened then is at the point at which we realized, you know what, perhaps we're not right on this and perhaps this isn't um, the way we should be approaching this. Howard Schultz got on a plane and went and met the Ethiopian Prime Minister in a closed-door meeting of two hours. They resolved the problem and we were able to do that. Smoke-filled closed-door? Uh, <laughs> as I wasn't there, okay. I have no idea. Okay, um, right, right, but the yeah. point is, is that, it's, again, it's about... Coffee room. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, everybody, you know, cooperating, talk together. I mean, the tensions are tough. When you're sitting there mm. on the sharp end, as many of you will know, of um, criticism, be it in the media, of an NGO, it's really, really hard. I mean, that day with Lord Mandelson was probably the longest day of my life. Uh, but the, the point... It's a short word to use there, wasn't it? <laughs> the, it was. The, um, the point, though, is that by dialogue talking together, actually, and if you have the right values and the right intent, you always will come, or you will m mostly always come to the right solution, mm -hmm. and then everybody's able to move on. And then people respect each other more, mm -hmm. and the next time it happens, you get more fluid at mm -hmm. being able to do that. I don't know, good news, I'm not happy about this. I'm not sure. It's progress. <laughs> what can I do with that? Okay, thank you. We'll move on to that later on. Um, Yes, please. We're happy and clappy. It's great. It's, uh, it's marvellous. Mar <laughs> Lastly, my dear colleague, Mrs. Moneypenny. Um, as I say, ten, not many colonists last ten years, let's face it. Yeah. Uh, Eleven, into the eleventh. Uh, which is testament to popular demand or market forces or quality or all three. Anyway, uh, Mrs. M, as I must address you, uh, please share some thoughts with us. Um, well, as, uh, as Stefan says, there are plenty of copies of the FT in the um, in Port Marion today. I did ask Lizzie how on earth they'd got here um, when Julia Hobsbawm asked me to come to a place that I thought, my God, how f my first thought was, how far is it from a Starbucks? <laughs> and, uh, and I have been promised that I will be told where I can get some Starbucks after this, so I'm very pleased to hear that. Um, and uh, I, I have to say that... Um, as you would expect from someone who, if you read the paper today, makes a living out of writing about how fat she is, and that I can get 700 words about how fat I am, um, I, I will probably be slightly lowering the tone compared to these great intellectuals to my right and the one that even preceded us. So, uh, for me, the, the fact that trust was very seriously back on the agenda was, uh, was crystallised um, in autumn of last year, 
when um, a full seven years after I had cited him, I think more times than any other person in my PhD thesis, Oliver Williamson won the Nobel, Peace, the Nobel Prize for Economics. In my opinion, it should be the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, the Nobel Prize for Economics is not a real Nobel Prize, you understand. It's called the Nobel Prize for Economics, but it wasn't set up by the Nobel Foundation. It was branded by the Swedish Central Bank. And, um, and they did that to engender trust in it. Um, they, the, the foundation, I have to say, have refused all other ones since, you know, the ABBA Nobel Prize for Music and the IKEA Nobel Prize for Design, etc. But we do have a Nobel Prize for Economics that is actually a Swedish Central Bank Prize. And uh, he, he said, um, Oliver Williamson, the thing that Neil mentioned and didn't cite, which was that trust lowers transaction costs, and he went out of his way to prove that. There is a real genuine cost to not trusting people, something, as I said, I have, I have written about hundreds of times in a more serious capacity. Um, and, and yesterday, when, um, uh, uh, when Bischoff, the chairman of Lloyds Banking Group, got up uh, to, to present their accounts, he actually said, and I went back to the webcast too so I could quote him accurately, he said that um, trust in our institutions, you know, not only uh, will be restored, it, it, it won't happen overnight, he said, but happen it must. And, and he means that because, not because he wants to feel good in some, you know, North London Guardian reading way, but because he wants people to walk into branches of Lloyds and deposit their money. And he doesn't want to have to pay too much for the privilege of attracting deposits. And I wanted to share with you three things about our business um, uh, that will show you how we use trust to, um, to lower the transaction costs of doing our business inside our own business. I mean, trust, first of all, is a thing that, uh, again, Neil touched on, uh, is subject of Latin. So, um, you know, all Latin scholars know that the, the word to trust has come from the Latin and it is in the word credit. And the whole issue of credit has come from the, from the Latin, I believe. Um, and so, uh, you know, being a Latin scholar, whether you're a Latin scholar in Aspen or in Davos or in Port Marion, being a Latin scholar is particularly important. And on that basis, on the act and on verba thing, which is, of course, Latin for, um, you know, action rather than extraction, I will just, as I said, mention these three different things. The first thing is that, um, that in our business, is that we, we've been in business for 28 years in my day job, and we deal with you know, upwards of 100 plus companies a year. And every year our client base is different. Every year it's better. But they're all big companies. They're all big companies and we trust them. And so we don't credit check them. I mean, right now, um, you know, we are currently working for Google, Glaxo and the Gates Foundation. And in all three cases, we didn't credit check them. When the Gates Foundation came to work with us, which started over a year ago now, they did credit check us. And they, they you know, we're a tiny little company in the you know, west end of London. And the Gates Foundation came to us on a recommendation, but they still went out of their way to credit check us and check us out. We haven't done that to them. <laughs> and, um, but, and it saves money and it saves time. Um, and that's why trust every day in our business is incredibly important. And actually, that's why we will only work for big companies. Um, because we want to be able to trust them, because it costs us less money to do it. The second thing that we do in our business um, is that we, we in, my, in our day job, in my day job, we work as a headhunter. And um, um, to that end, we speak to 3,000 people a year on the telephone about their careers, and we interview face-to-face just over 1,000 people a year. And we don't crawl-check them. I know there is somebody here from Kroll, isn't there? And then we don't crawl-check them. But interestingly, our clients do. I mean, our clients... 
um, actually spend money to curl check or equivalent check the CVs of the people that we put forward. And that is becoming more and more and more the norm, which I think says quite a lot about things. But we don't do that, and we don't do it because it costs about £350 for CV, and not 3000 a go. I'll leave you to do the math. But it's, um, it, it's something we don't do. And we, we, make a, we, we tell our clients that we don't do that, so that we, we do... Uh, what we say, and we encourage them to do it if they wish to. But again, it's about trusting, trusting the candidates that come to us. And it's another reason why we stick working only in the area of communications, because we can follow those candidates from a very early stage when they left, um, uh, when they actually left City University's postgraduate uh, course and moved forward into journalism and then to the world of communications. And we can track them all the way back. So we feel a bit like Coral. Um, and the third thing, which I think is probably the most important thing that gives us our greatest competitive advantage, is that we trust each other within the business. Now, Matthew mentioned that as something that was very important at Vodafone. Vodafone, of course, got rather a lot more employees than we have. Um, and again, at Starbucks, you know, that's very important. They trust each other. They trust, it's a team effort. And the way that we trust each other is you can actually do lots of things to improve trust within a business. First of all, I have to make sure that the team that work in and around our business and the team that work with me trust me. So I go out of my way to build trust with them before I ask them to trust me. And I think that's the thing that's missing, is that people, it's a personal thing, trust. It's not about, you know, uh, individual companies building trust. You know, Lloyds Bank won't build trust out of, um, you know, somebody just saying something or doing something or feeling good about it. They will build trust because... You know, the individual people will do things to engender trust and will build relationships with people. And, and I have to build a relationship with people inside our, our company and they have to build a relationship with our stakeholders. And, we, you know, we, for instance, will not work on a commission basis. We will not pay the people who work in our headhunting business a percentage of the money they bring in because I think that doesn't engender team trust. And we haven't done it for 28 years and we won't be doing it for another 28 years. And it means that we are not really a recruitment company as such. We're somewhere between a management consultancy and, as I said, a private detective agency. But it means it makes that when the phone goes, whoever it is, ha- you know, the phone will be answered and answered helpfully. And I, I trust my colleagues to do that. And they trust me to look after them. And that lowers our transaction costs before, you know, below anything. So the, the last thing is then, how do businesses build that trust? Um, and, it, you know, I firmly believe in the building of social capital. And I believe it's about people. And I believe that, you know, we have to actually meet each other and spend time together in this digital world in, also, in order. We have, whether we sit on a train from Birmingham um, or we all come to North Wales, miles from a Starbucks, you know, that's why we're here. We are here to build social capital with each other so that the next time you encounter me or the next time that I encounter you and we want to do business together, we will do so. That's why... People like Neil and I go and sit in the bloody snow in Switzerland every year in January um, because people are more likely to do business with me because I've sat at the McKinsey party in Davos till one in the morning listening to some deeply dull banker um, who's dull even with 16 drinks on board um, because... Because I know that when I, you know, this is a real story, because when I know when I'm next pitching for a job that he is involved with, either on the board of directors or something, I can write to him and say, you know, um, you know, remember me? You know, I'm that girl that listened to you for hours at the McKinsey party in Davos. And, uh, you know, I'd like to do business with you now. And that, honestly, it's a competitive advantage. I mean, you talked about competitive advantages, several of you. It's a competitive advantage. Um, that's why I, I, you know, again, in a very not North London way, I spend hours, days, weeks, every year, shooting innocent birds out of the sky. 
And I do that because I'm standing on the next door peg for, for 24 hours at a time with people who will be our clients, building trust with them, spending time with them. It's only spending time with people that lowers transaction costs and builds trust. It's not just about what you say and do in the newspapers, etc. It's about real people and real things. And that's why we're here. Thank you. Um, you mean at 1am at the McKinsey party you don't sit in a circle and sing Kumbaya? <laughs> so Neil's right. how Richard Branson is there when you know jolly well he's not an accredited delegate and hasn't ever been. Uh, <laughs> we have a little bit of time left before you flag, before we all flag uh, into the break to ask some questions. Uh, hello, Chantal Trigger. I just wanted to ask about trust in business in a downturn when you've made people redundant and the sense of family and community within organisations. And how do you restore that and how do you maintain relationships with the remaining employees and keep those disaffected who might have left who felt they were part of a, a community and a family in a long term? Because trust can then just erode so quickly through your employee base. Mm-hmm. Trust in a downturn. Um, Richard, I suppose some of your MBA uh, students are people actually who were until recently employed and are doing something different and rebuilding themselves and perhaps trying to rediscover trust. But let me not answer it for you. What do you no, think? no, I... I... <laughs> Absolutely. I, um, I think I was going to offer two perspectives on this question. One was actually from my banking, where I have to say there was an almost brutal disregard for um, what you were trying to build. And I remember very well the dot-com bubble bursting and literally um, being part of an effort that then had to downsize um, two or three hundred bankers. <coughs> and um, it's one of, it was handled in one of the most soulless, dispiriting ways imaginable. Um, and I think did a lot of damage, actually, to the organization. And it's back to what you were saying, Mrs. M, um, that the, uh, you have to work so hard to build a sense of trust with your team. And actually, the, you know, the, in that case, the single act of the way in which we, we handle that, I think, was really quite devastating. I then flipped to um, my current role, and um, I'd say we have worked exceptionally hard not to make anyone redundant through the current crisis. And the reason for that is because, actually, we, I, I think we have a genuine sense of compact and team. And I know it's not always possible, but, but one of the um, things I have striven very hard to do is to avoid uh, all-too-easy redundancies in the current climate. And I... The contrast, to me, is very, very striking. Yes, Matthew. There's one one point to that. Uh, Having started a new job and had to go through a round of redundancies within three days of starting it, which was was quite a a challenge, um, two things were really foremost in my mind. One was was your point that the how you do it is hugely important, Uh, and not only for just dealing with the people as human beings and and colleagues and friends and so forth, but also for the message that you send to the majority who are staying. Um, And I think we put a lot of thought into how we were going to go through the day, how we were going to explain to people and so forth. Um, And and the 
the offer that was made to them was a fair one. Uh, obviously not a pleasant one, but nonetheless a fair one. The company was not just slamming the door in your face, but was trying to uh, make it as less, least unpleasant as it could be in the circumstances. The second thing I think which is really important if you have to do it is to choose the right people to make redundant because I think there is a, a sense that if it's completely arbitrary then everyone's afraid all of the time whereas if the people who stay can see the logic of what you've done in terms of the structure of the team that's left uh, then they're much more accepting that you may not have wanted to do it, you had to do it, uh, you explain the reasons why you have to do it uh, but you've then done it in a rational and coherent way. And they can then position themselves rationally in relation to the new structure and feel confident that the new structure is one that they can work in. Yeah, Darcy. I think the, the other thing I would say is if a if business is going through a downturn and needs to cut costs, and that might mean jobs, what you have to do is put a lens on it for the company. You have to say, when this recession is over, what do we want the company to look like? How do we want it to behave for our customers, our employees, whatever it is? And share that. I mean, get input into that in the first place. But then share that and say, this is where we are today, and this is what we're going to look like at the end of all of this. And with that, people can then help you make the right decisions to get to the, to, to the end point. Thank you. I've got a lot of hands, so I'll move on unless people are dying to... Derek Wyatt. Um, Matthew, you mentioned about you know, the dislocation between government and business. Uh, and Simon, you've had a tough time uh, because Tata wanted 500 million alone in the recession from the government. I wondered if you could say whether there was a breakdown in trust between Tata and, and the department because it became very, very personal. And that's now affected Chorus, which is another Tata company, which is also struggling. And so I just wonder whether you feel that the government didn't understand you or actually doesn't understand Tata. I personally think it's actually a broader agenda than just our company. Um, uh, and, you know, I'd probably highlight some contrast between the UK and other countries and their attitudes, not only to the, the car industry, but their industrial base, you know, Germany being a, a fantastic example. But, you know, through, through the, that period of credit crunch and recession, just about every car manufacturing nation in the world supported the car industries, either with short-term loans, loan guarantees, or direct investment in R&D support. Um, they have structural setups around their tax system that, uh, that support people staying in employment through sort of sabbatical-type systems and stuff like that, as opposed to you know, paying them through unemployment benefit. We don't have those mechanisms. We don't have um, the, the strength of industrial policy that I personally think we need in this country. Um, to support investment in R&D, investment in manufacturing. Um, David Smith was here last year, and I think he probably made the point in his speech, it's certainly a point we make very often, that um, a company like Bosch or Siemens in Germany spends as much on R&D as the entire automotive and auto aerospace combined. The, the talks, I think, last year um, were as much around the attitude to industry and perhaps, you know, with some burnt fingers over what happened in the 1970s, which was absolutely not what was being, what was being requested, but was definitely what was remembered. Um, and, um, you know, set against a context of, you know, frankly, uh, a sort of civil service now that has effectively grown up, um, 
looking to financial services, looking to non-interventionist policy, etc., etc. So I, I, I think it was much, much broader than just a breakdown of trust between the people sitting opposite the table. I think it was far, if you like, more cultural than that. Uh, it's Martin Bright. Um, I was very interested, uh, as one of the panellists that was critical of uh, creepy business uh, this morning, um, very interested in, in Matthew's question that his chief executive asks him, uh, how certain are you that you are doing nothing wrong? But I noticed you didn't answer it. No wrong. Yes. We as a company. We, yes, you. You, I mean, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me, me, personally. <laughs> uh, no, I don't mean you personally, but I, I, would, I would like you and perhaps the other panellists to answer that question. How certain are you? The best answer I can give you is that we try really hard to know what we're doing. Uh, we have about 84,000 employees <laughs> in 32 countries. Um, I think more than 32 countries, actually. Um, and knowing what every one of those employees are doing at any one point is, is simply impossible without an intrusion into their privacy, which is unacceptable. Um, so you think quite hard about how your systems work so that your systems will warn you uh, if, if it looks as though something is going wrong. Um, and then you operate on layers of trust within the organization. And, and I think that the systems are a crude way of giving you a warning, internal audit, that kind of thing. It's, it's necessary. Um, but actually, one of the things I think the, the U.S. Um, Congress got terribly wrong uh, in its response to en Enron was Sarbanes-Oxley, which created this massive program. Uh, it cost us tens of millions of pounds a year to comply with Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, and it just leaves you with a completely false sense of security because uh, anyone who is trying to get around the system, it's such an elaborate system that it's actually very easy to get around. So you rely much more on the personal knowledge and personal trust. And instilling a set of, of values, Darcy was talking about values, instilling a set of values into the company, running down through the employee base from the top to the bottom, making the values very evident and very clear at the top uh, so that uh, the entire employee base know, know what to look for. And then relying on, on people within the company, um, also keeping an eye open for you, spotting what's right, spotting what's wrong. It's, it, it's not an easy thing to do. How confident am I, as of this moment, that nobody in Vodafone is doing anywhere, anything wrong anywhere in the world? Well, of course I'm not confident of that. How confident am I that we are really trying to make sure that we do no wrong? I'm very confident of that because that's a really powerful drive from the top and a very big part of how we have our internal management relationships. I'm going to invoke what I like to think of as the uh, Baroness Kennedy of the Shaw's precedent and answer that question, but briefly, good management. Good management. There's an old saying in the city that Richard may have heard, that management is what you do when the markets have closed. <laughs> and that's what they did at Socgen. And that's why Jérôme Carville was able to get up to what he got up to, costing him billions and billions of euros. And if we strip out too many layers of managers and lose our traditional supervisors, to use the old language, more, more things will go wrong. So good management helps you find out if somebody's doing anything wrong. Um, now, I had Julia and Claire and another lady in the middle, and, and then we'll see how we're doing. Yeah. What I think 
trust is also a euphemism for, the real kind of interesting trust that you're all talking about, is intimacy, which is actually a bit of an anathema to the corporate soul. And Darcy's illustration of going out into the field directly to hear what you may not want to hear is a form of intimacy. And I've wondered for some time whether part of the collective revulsion of the public against the banks is that they have practiced a distinct lack of intimacy, and worse than that, they've practiced a faux intimacy. Who likes those calls in a, in a far-off, crackly line saying, hello, and how are you today? <laughs> it's an Indian voice with a fake American accent, with fake bonhomie. When you're phoning to say, I don't know, you know, I can't get into my account or I'm not trusting the system anyway or whatever. And I think that the banks have misunderstood this, that they have put barriers up between themselves and their clients. I'm obviously talking about the retail banks. I'm not talking so much about the, the other lack, lack of trust. And, of course, the corollary of that is authenticity. So I just wondered if anyone would like to talk about the fact that, of course, the business of intimacy is easier in a way when you're giving someone a cup of coffee. It's a very intimate thing to purchase, something that you then put, as Ian said yesterday, into your mouth. So is there two things? One is, do we think the banks got it wrong on, on intimacy? And second of all, is there a sort of spectrum of businesses that lend themselves more to, that, to better trustworthy relationships? Love it. Can we take Claire and the third question now and then <clears throat> let the panel, and we'll try and... Crack on. So, uh, Claire at the back. I, I actually wanted to um, ask the panel really about why there was such enthusiasm for NGOs as the arbiter of values. <laughs> A number of people have said, oh, you know, we want to be like the NGOs and trusted. We want to work with the NGOs. Uh, I know that it is, you know, kind of in the kind of knee-jerk anti-corporatism. It's kind of they're the bad guys, the NGOs are the good guys. I mean... There might be a query on that point. <laughs> NGOs, by the way, have highly contested political ideas, which aren't always right, or values that we should aspire to. It's just that we're not allowed to say that because you get kicked out of polite society. <laughs> uh, they're completely anti-democratic. And, you know, things like fair trade at least is something that we should argue over. I actually think it's all for the bad in Africa as it goes. Um, just to say. Um, and, um, but, but anyway, the other thing is, I suppose, that what that gets me to is... The idea of values taking over, the, the way that corporations can win the trust of the public, and particularly young people is often the case, is to kind of put values to the fore. I get a bit nervous about this. I understand the Starbucks model, your values and uh, uh, so on are part of your brand. But there are times when, if you try and understand what a corporation does, you, you don't know what they make anymore. I mean, you know that everybody works within a city black youth. You know that they care about the planet and the world. You know that they are wonderful people whose values matter. And then you sort of say, well, do you create anything at all? It's almost as though a lot of corporations are in denial. They want to gain the trust of ordinary people by denying they are corporations. <laughs> I happen to think that it's quite a good value to create value and that we should stop being so defensive about that. I happen to think that cars are not the devil incarnate. I think that sometimes it might be useful for people to actually go on the offensive and say personal mobility has been a fantastic social good, has moved society forward enormously. And the fact that we sit and hide behind that and keep saying we're really nice people with good values might get superficial CSR brownie points, but in the end won't be really building real trust because actually new generations become cynical about what is, after all, a superficial marketing ploy. Thank you. Thank you. And in the, in, at the front here... Um...
Thank you, Di Burton. Um, I really like Mrs. Moneypenny's um, talk, particularly the opening. Um, picking up Julia's piece about the trusted advisor, David Meister talks about this, uh, about intimacy. David Meister talks about this a lot in the trusted advisor. But I like the relationship piece. You know, we've been talking a lot about online communities, um, but the trust isn't there in the same way that you're building it up by shooting next to those people, you know, when you go on shoots. And Charles Handy always said, never put IT before people. Um, now, my question to the panel is, in the past, we always understood you needed six touch points before you really trusted somebody to buy from them. With the advantages in technology, has that speeded up or do we still need those six touch points? Wonderful. So we've got uh, intimacy, intimacy and trust in business. We've got the role of, and the validity of NGOs. And then actually, how do you build this trust? Do we need six, has it, has six touch points? Has it speeded up? And I'll let market forces... Uh... <laughs> yes, Darcy. Happy to go. So on the first point of intimacy, I think the key thing there is uh, being genuine and authentic. And uh, the way, regardless of whether it's a bank or a cup of coffee, it's all about our business boils down to... Uh, it's a two-pound business, right? It's uh, a, you know, a latte or a cappuccino, one customer and one partner or, or one of our employees, a barista. And that's it. And the, we're only as good as the last cup of coffee that we sold. And what we don't ever do is tell our baristas what to say. We never say, you have to say this to a customer. We say that customers want you to connect with them, but how you do it is entirely up to you, which is why you'll never hear the same thing being said over and over again in one of our stores, because we ask people to do whatever comes naturally to them. So I think it, the intimacy is created in one interaction, in one transaction, and... Uh, I think that's where the banks, the retail banks, failed is by failing to understand that it's all about that one individual relationship in some cases. Um, on the point around NGOs, fair trade, um, good is b big is bad, etc., I would say, so first of all, my point on, on using fair trade as the example is not, it's not about NGOs. It's about it's bigger than you. It's bigger than one individual. Um, and if I take the point, go back to uh, Rwanda, although we work with fair trade in Rwanda, we also, have a, we also do an enormous amount of work on our own because that's what we think is really important. So we opened um, an agronomy office. So this is an office, a Starbucks office with Starbucks people with trained agronomists whose role in life is to go out and teach farmers how to grow better quality coffee without using pesticides, so effectively improving yield. In Rwanda, the farmers produce, on average, seven bags of coffee, seven 50 kilograms of coffee per hectare of land. It's 30 in Costa Rica. It's 100 in Brazil. So rather than talking to the farmers about an extra five cents on a pound of coffee, come and learn how to double your yield uh, without increasing cost. And therefore, we've doubled your income. So it's about, it's every, it's about everybody um, working together. And on this point about as big, you know, big is bad, we're not trying to um, hide behind, our, we're not trying to say we're not big at all. And in fact, a marketing campaign that I initiated was about being big. Go, you go back to, it was uh, probably December last year, where what we're trying, the message we're trying to give is there's things that we can do as a large corporation that smaller people can't do. And therefore, our responsibility is to use our scale uh, for good um, so that... That, that would be... Any other... Well, just, just um, uh, I guess, to underscore what Julia was saying on the bank side, I was very um, struck some years ago. Um, Barclays 
actually uh, the, 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 new, the then new head of retail decided to carry out an experiment. And outside um, some branches in London, he actually stuck uh, sellotape some five-pound notes to the wall. <laughs> and such as the lack of trust and lack of intimacy, these notes were available to be taken away. Um, they weren't actually removed, which I think is a remarkable uh, state of affairs. I mean, I, I agree with what, what's just been said, but I do think actually um, uh, there has been an absolutely fundamental failure of imagination on the part of um, managements of retail banks in actually um, creating that uh, customer relationship and having the, the, the appropriate intimacy with the client and customer in order to um, actually build on it, a total failure. Simon? Um, if I may, I'll just link two sets of questions. Um, yes, intimacy, absolutely, if you can. Um, the banks weren't the only ones to have call centres and they aren't, you know, won't be going forward. You know, in the scale of some of these businesses, that level of intimacy is nigh and impossible. I mean, we're selling, whatever, 250,000 cars a year, BMW million plus, I don't know how many cups of coffee you're selling. But, a million a week. Right. Um, you know, the... But let me link that back to the last question about six touch points. Before the internet, especially 2.0, I guess, um, people used to go into dealerships to buy cars about seven times. Um, now they go in once, maybe twice. Um, and that's because on their internet, they're doing all their research, all their comparison testing with other vehicles, they're configurating their vehicle online. The only reason you go to the dealership now is to haggle over the price and maybe to test drive. So our opportunities to have that intimate interaction, the human interaction, have been significantly reduced by new technology. Um, other linkage of the, the, the other two questions. On NGOs, personally, I think it's basically a David and Goliath story. Um, and, you know, one's small, one's big, one's got good cause, in inverted commas, and the other arguably hasn't. Um, but your, your final point, um, you know, I think, I think wealth generation, you know, from some of these large organisations, wealth generation from our organisation is, is fantastically important. We're generating... You know, we've got 16,000 direct employees, multiply that by eight through the supply chain and all the tax revenue that's going into that. We're about four billion of tax revenue from exports. But wealth generation, as you sort of hinted, is almost not an acceptable value. And I think that links back to the NGOs as well. Because they're non -for, not for profit, they are you know, deemed as being good guys and, and the ones just chasing money are not. Uh, Matthew, are you, are you waggling your pencil with intent? Okay, well, Matthew, Mrs. M, and then one last question. Yeah. Just two quite very quickly. One on, on, on the question of sort of size versus intimacy. We have around 340 million customers worldwide. We have around 125 million customers in the EU. You cannot have an intimate relationship with every one of them. It, it's completely impossible. Um, many of them never have a face-to-face -face interaction with a Vodafone employee because they're buying the service through third parties of one kind or another. Um, if we set up our systems so that when they come into us through a call centre or whatever, we create the possibility of a more intimate relationship, then we fall exactly into the problem that was being discussed over breakfast this morning, that we're actually using our systems to aggregate a set of data that we don't have any particular business reason to do, and many of our customers would find that quite intimidating and quite off-putting. So judging the... Uh, the, the pitch of call centres, and it varies from one country to another. When I was in the Foreign Office, we did a study of the efficiency of 
visa services in answering telephone queries. And it came to the conclusion, this was before I had anything to do with the embassy in Helsinki, the embassy in Helsinki was the single most efficient unit in the foreign office at answering visa inquiries. And I think the consulate somewhere in southern Spain was the single least efficient. Um, and so we thought, well, that's simple. You just sack half the people in the consulate in Spain and make them efficient, and it'll be very easy. In fact, that wasn't the case. If you're a Finn, you, you ring up, you ask a question, you expect to get the answer straight away, the call ends like that. And anything more than that is an intrusion in, into your private life, which is unacceptable. If you're a Spaniard, on the other hand, you need to have talked about your family and where you're going on holiday and what you had for lunch yesterday before you get around to asking the question. And if you don't do that, it's impolite. And I think cultural understanding and closeness to the culture... Um, is, a, is a very critical thing. We're seeing more and more companies looking at keeping their call centres as we do in the countries that they're serving rather than elsewhere. Final, very quick point on this, uh, to, to answer the point about NGOs. We, we've just had this debate internally. Do we project values or do we project what we do? And our conclusion very clearly was we don't project values. We don't try to project values. We live by our values. They're internal things. We do, however, project quite a lot the benefits that our business brings to society and to the economy and so forth. And we have to do that because we make a lot of money. And we have to make a lot of money because we have, after the last 15 years or so, invested 100 billion euros in building telecommunications infrastructure in Europe. You can't do that. You can't get investors to put that sort of money into a business unless you're generating a return. And I think this is hugely important for uh, the, the future of the way in which investment operates uh, in, in our economies. Briefly, Mrs. M. Right, yes, I mean, I think on, um, on intimacy banks and six points of touch um, and whether or not anyone in our business is doing anything uh, wrong or are they all doing the right things, um, I, I said I think intimacy and personal interaction is the most important element of building trust. And it, it's why banks make lots of money, by the way, because there are the, the key barrier to entry to underwriting a rights issue or whatever is not price. It's about whether Eric Daniels trusts Matthew Greenberg at Merrill Lynch to get hit the biggest rights issue in Europe away. And will Eric Daniels make four telephone calls to see what, who's going to charge him what? Of course not. He'll make one phone call to Matthew because he knows Matthew can deliver. And, and that, how does he know Matthew can deliver? Because he has known Matthew for a long time and he's spent a lot of time with him and he's seen what else Matthew can do and he trusts him. And that's why that phone call went to Bank of America Merrill Lynch and that's why they made all that money. So what I, I, you know, I firmly believe that. I mean, and banks as a problem, I mean, everybody has a view on banks where they touch them. Julia touches them and she has to ring them up and ask them for something and, or get a mortgage or whatever. And I've been with Julia when she's been trying to deal with these things. And, you know, more they are... <laughs> more, more, more sharing. And, uh, and, and I know that they are, they are very different things. Um, but, you know, other, other of us touch banks in other ways. You know, I am, when I bought my business five years ago, I borrowed £1.8 million to do it. And I got turned down by four different banks before I got to the, got to the one that said yes. And, um, and I make a point of naming and shaming those four banks whenever I possibly can. Um, the, uh, of course, the real issue around banks is... is, is <laughs> The real issue around banks, of course, is the whole back to the Latin problem, you know, Aspen, Port Merion, the City of London, the word bonus is a Latin word. It means something good and positive and unexpected. Mm. And it's about how, you know, and I really resent the fact that people are anti-bonuses because bonus is just a mechanism for paying somebody. And what people resent is about how much money 
those people earn. I was pitched head-to-head in the Jeremy Vine show the other day against Billy Bragg. Nothing that I recommend as an experience, by the way. <laughs> and um, number one, he is not nearly as good-looking as Neil Ferguson. Now, and, no, and, no, and number two, he's not nearly so clever. So um, on, on neither count... Yeah, no, um, and I wouldn't dream of letting... He probably wouldn't even tell him it was real. You know, there would be some disaster that took place. So I... I, I <laughs> I would, um, I would, I would think that you know, these these things are, are about you know communication, and as Matthew has said, it's about how you communicate things. And uh, I think the, the misappropriating the use of bonus is another one. Um, how, on a more serious note, just for a second, um, the reason I can put my hand on my heart at the end of every year and think, uh, have we as a business done the right thing during the year? Is if it's cost us money, if we have had to make decisions during the year that have cost us money. Um, and have reduced our margins, then I know they were the right decisions. And the sec- my second asset test is, were they for the long term? So did we take a decision that enriched us? So we don't work for PR agencies, and, that's a dis- and it, we get asked about that over and over again, and the reason we don't... Well, 93% of our business is not from PR agencies, and we choose that, and we choose it at our cost. And, um, and I, we turn it down over and over again, and it costs us money. It costs us real money. I still have a mortgage. I probably wouldn't still have a mortgage if we were to prepared to work for agencies or prepared to work for organisations that we don't trust. Um, and, you know, when people kept asking and asking us for... Um, and Vodafone's a very good example. I've been a client for, you know, all the time I've been um, in my day job. And, you know, they asked us for diverse shortlists. And, you know, I'm proud to say that Vodafone is one of the places that we have had successful diverse shortlist uh, placement into. But, you know, no one's creating diverse candidates. So in the end, nothing for it, two years ago, we went out and set up our own ethnic minority training program. And we pay these people's salaries to come in and be trained by us for 10 weeks and then put them into jobs in the hope that one day in the future we'll have a diverse shortlist. But, you know, that cost has cost us, and I'm not even going to tell you on a podcast how much it's cost us. This darling, as a, uh, a sub say. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, share, share. You know. So, uh, on a final note, uh, on the sixth, on the sixth, on the sixth. She's a colleague. It's all right. <laughs> on the six touch points, I tell you what the internet has done, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of building trust, is that it's it's um, it's given me too much information. So actually, now what's happened is I've, I've reduced my points of trust so that I will trust somebody if either I know them already and I've spent time on the train with them, or some, if Julia rang me and said, I want you to see somebody, because it's Julia who asks, okay, I will. So, hello, last September, real example. Hello, I am the comment editor of The Observer. Um, will you write a piece for us on the tax treatment of lap dancing? No, I've never heard of you, and I don't do The Observer, you know. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, um, uh, no, try have a second go. Hello, I'm the commentator of the Observer, and Harriet Green, who works with me, says that you will write a piece on lap dancing for the Observer. Okay, I like and trust Harriet Green. I've known her a very long time. She's married to someone who used to work at the FT. I absolutely will write a piece on lap dancing for the Observer. You know, and in the space of a second, I go from saying, you know, no, I won't, to yes, I will, because I, because I trust the person on the end of the phone. Thank you. I'm now going to lose the trust of several friends and colleagues in the audience by not taking any more questions, even though I promised to. Uh, the last bit of Latin hasn't been enough. All you need to know about columnists and management gurus. Haruspex, haruspicem, cum widet, ridet. And for £350 a time, I will offer anyone a translation of that uh, uh, later on this afternoon. Please thank our excellent panel.